welcome to the Yoga Teacher Circle podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Ray, yoga teacher. You are needed now more than ever, and your unique voice, message, and offering needs to be shared with the world. In this podcast, we'll talk about all things related to teaching yoga to help you thrive doing what you love most, teaching yoga. So let's dive in. I am so excited to have you on today, Mado. I absolutely love the work you do in this world. We very much align in our mission and our passion working with yoga teachers. So that's why I'm super stoked to have you here. And I know that you've created such an awesome community called Yoga Teacher Resource. You're a fellow podcaster, you help teachers build their skills, build businesses, and you do all the great things. I would love to just kick it off with, let's have you introduce yourself a little bit more. How long you've been teaching yoga and what inspired you to become a yoga teacher? So we're going to take it back. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Taylor. I love podcasting so much and I, I do enjoy being the host, but honestly, it's such a treat for me to be on the other side and to be the guest and just to get to answer questions. It's a treat. It's my favorite thing. Awesome. So thank you for that. Yeah. I have been teaching for 16 years or so. Okay. And I started practicing yoga in college. I was not an athletic person. I had a little seasonal affective disorder and I started actually with martial arts. This was my my first kind of introduction to movement. I was a big bookworm. Okay. So I was like pale and you know, in the corner reading books <laughs> as a child. And it was like, I had asthma, none of the athletics. I was not, that was not my, my gift. So I started with martial arts. They were very, it was intense. It was an awakening for me that I had a body. Mm. And around the same time I was introduced to yoga and it was like, ah, oh, in comparison to martial arts, the yoga was so soothing. So I practiced both of those for three, four years. Um, and then I got pregnant and I was actually in teacher training when I got pregnant. Okay. And in hindsight, I could have kept going, but the, the leader of the teacher training said, oh, most women who get pregnant drop out. Now I realize like that didn't have to be my story, but I did kind of take her up on that. And I dropped out and I completed the training two years later when my daughter was about two. Mm. So I guess I started it again when mm -hmm. she was about two. And so I've been teaching since 2005. So my daughter is almost 18 now. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, why did I want to become a teacher? Just because I love the yoga. I love the way it made me feel. That was, that was the entry point. It was just, you know, with that mental health challenges of, of not having the most stable mood and finding something that really worked and wasn't medication, that was really important to me. So when my daughter was born, I kind of had to choose between the martial arts and the yoga. Like I didn't have the time to just do it all anymore. And for me, because of that feeling, like martial arts felt like, okay, this is a big challenge. This is a big rite of passage. This is intense. And yoga in comparison just felt so nurturing. So that's what I chose. And that's why I went through teacher training. And I just wanted to help other people feel the way that I felt after mm -hmm. practicing. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Now, the work you do has probably pivoted a lot, I imagine, as in now you work with yoga teachers specifically. 
And that's something that we can really connect over. And today's topic I'm really stoked about, it's one of my favorite conversations to have, is we're gonna dive into imposter syndrome and prioritizing your personal yoga practice for teachers. How did you pivot into working with students and just sharing the yoga practice with everyone into working with teachers specifically? Well, first, I just was honored to get to participate in teaching teacher trainings, which I've done for over 10 years now. And that was always so fun. It's just the the level of joy and the level of interest in the room was you can't repeat it in any in any other situation. So about, let's say, four or five years ago, I had a business coach sit me down and say, you have to choose a niche. And I, of course, I pushed back at first. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to. No, I, I, I have lots of interests. I don't want to pin myself down. I don't want to exclude anybody, all of these stories. But she was firm with me. And she was like, no, it's not going to work if you don't choose a niche. And so she asked me, you know, where do you get the most joy in teaching? And I was like, well, teacher trainings, when I'm teaching teachers, that is the most joy because they're so passionate and they're so excited about yoga. And we can dive down these rabbit holes of inquiry that we certainly don't have time for in a regular class that is more asana focused. So that's how it started. And once I made that statement of I'm going to serve teachers, then I started to reach out to teachers. And I did a research project where I had 100 conversations and they were on Zoom Actually, the first round, I think, was on the phone. Eventually, I switched to Zoom. But at first, I started them just like phone calls. And I was just asking them, what do you need? What are you looking for? What kind of support do you need? And that's how it started. And that has been my technique and my method and my my way of interacting with teachers has always been to ask them what they need first. And then of course, you know, you provide your perspective on that and your take on it, but it always starts with getting to know them first. Yeah. I love that. I connect with that so much because it was just last year that I made the decision, like I'm going to let go of the everyday yoga student and I'm only going to serve teachers. Same thing. Like teachers are so ready to just dive in deep. And it was always so exciting. And yeah, I totally connect with that. I love that. So what was the most common thing you heard out of the 100 conversations? Well, the biggest thing I heard is I'm struggling making money. I really want to either teach full time or if I am teaching full time, I want to not feel like I'm living paycheck to paycheck or not even paycheck to paycheck. It's like one little paycheck here, one little paycheck here. So that was a big part of it is just I heard a lot of struggles with the business side of yoga. And then a lot of anatomy is kind of the other big one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense too, right? Because 200 hours just isn't enough, period. It's just the start. And like I lead 200 hour programs, there's only so much time that you can really spend on business or anatomy when really you're, you're trying to create such a solid foundation to learn how to share and teach yoga. So I tell the teachers like, this is the start. This is not enough. <laughs> yeah. And definitely with really both of those topics, there's only so much you can learn at once. And with the business part, I feel like anything you taught them in teacher training, it would kind of go in one ear and out the other anyway, because mm -hmm. they're just figuring out how to guide people into Trikonasana. 
Totally. You know, so they have to focus on the mechanics of showing up as a teacher in the classroom because business is a whole other skill set. Mm -hmm. And not every single yoga teacher wants to be a business owner, right? Some yoga teachers, it, they want it to be their seva, their service. Mm -hmm. Some yoga teachers, it's like a second career and they want to just make pocket money, but they don't want to think about that side. They just want to show up and teach. Other yoga teachers, it's like almost like a hobby. So that's cool, right? There's lots of options for how you want to show up as a teacher. Mm -hmm. But there is a subset of teachers who want it to be their full time income, like they don't want to be distracted by trying to get their needs met their physical needs met in a different way, they want to be able to really focus on their teaching. Well, yeah. here's the secret. Like you have to focus on business too, if you want that to happen. It doesn't just magically fall into your lap. Unfortunately, um, I wish that it did. I certainly thought that it would myself for many years. I, I had this story that if I just became a good enough teacher, that the opportunities would come to me and that the money would just follow, that yeah. that was what it would took was being a good enough teacher. And that's not true. There's so many amazing teachers out there who are not getting paid like enough to live on. So there was a, there just came a point in time. Actually, my mom died in 2012 with $400 in her bank account. Wow. And that, that was a turning point for me. Sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just imagine. I just had that realization like this is not going to be my story too. Like I'm not going to struggle with money my entire life. I'm I'm going to make her death mean something, you know? Yeah. So that was the turning point where I decided that I was going to be willing to be uncomfortable uh because the the business side of things it's it's not my natural it's not my natural desire. I have learned that it's actually really interesting, but I had a lot of stories and a lot of resistance around it for a long time. Um, but it's like in honor of my mom that I took that on and then I found a new passion. So that was really cool. That's really beautiful and so powerful. Yeah, I appreciate you being open and sharing that. It's something that I've, I'm also really working on and I, I'm helping a lot of teachers do the same thing is rewriting the money story, right? And like how we grew up too, because like I definitely have my mom's money story that I'm trying to just mash these barriers and beliefs. And it is some deep work. It's some really deep work. So that's really powerful. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I think one of the stories that we have that really holds us back and limits us in that way is that money is dirty, money is impure, that it kind of taints things. And that is optional. <laughs> money is completely neutral. Yeah. And there, there is nothing corrupting about money. Now, if we want to talk about power, I think that's a little bit of a different conversation, but money itself is means. Mm -hmm. And within the yoga tradition, means are a very important goal. Mm -hmm. it, they're a very important aspect of why we do the work we do. And they make our karma, our, our purpose in life, they make it possible. The means make it possible. And money is only means. Mm -hmm. Without the means, we don't have the ability to live our purpose. And that is, um, so it's really sad to me that so many yoga teachers avoid learning the skills that could give them the means to help more people. 
because of these unconscious stories that are running in the background telling us that that is an unethical way of being in the world when it could be the most ethical way (laughs) of being in the world, right? That is up to you what you do with your means. Yeah. And it helps you to do the work you're in alignment with. If you're making the money that you need and beyond, then you can continue to show up and do the work you're actually meant to do. And that's what you said, it's even more impactful. And I love what you said, money is just neutral because it is, we give it meaning. It's just the story that we create around it is good or bad, but it's just is, money just is. So I love that. Well, I think this is a really good little segue into imposter syndrome because that's a lot about limiting beliefs and the stories that we tell ourselves. This is one of my favorite conversations to have. And it's just such a real part of being a yoga teacher. It shows up for us as a brand new teacher. It shows up for me still nine years later, I'm sure for you, 16 years later, right? So, and I know I see it hold so many teachers back from fully stepping into their role. It's the most common conversation I have in YTT as they're about to graduate, right? So it's just stepping into that. Let's talk about imposter syndrome and let's just start with, well, what is imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is a self-perception that is not in line with reality, okay? So it is a judgment about our capacity to our credentials and our abilities in the world that don't reflect our actual life experience and our actual credentials. So something really interesting about imposter syndrome, uh, there are different factors that influence it. So there's the cultural factor of the culture we live in. And there's the like family factor of what are the stories that you were taught as a child. So if you lived in a family with really high expectations, you're much more likely to have imposter syndrome. And then the third one is like a personal genetic factor of just kind of how you came out, you know? But all of these three factors come together and that cultural factor plays a big role because imposter syndrome is most prevalent among women of color. So second most prevalent among women and then men get it too, for sure, but less likely. For example, in the yoga world, when you see big name yogis, when you see yogis who have kind of become famous, you see a really uneven distribution of men compared to the general population of yoga teachers. Mm -hmm. And I believe that a big part of that is that so many female yoga teachers just don't believe in themselves enough to put themselves out there and to project the confidence that it takes to, to take on that kind of a role. And culturally, the messages that men, especially white men have received, and I know things are changing a lot right now. But you know, those of us who are adults right now, the cultural messages we received is that white men are worthy of being well known and successful. And so having grown up and kind of taken in those cultural messages, they have less imposter syndrome. Super interesting. I like how you said that women or like female yoga teachers just aren't projecting the confidence that it takes to put themselves out there because that's really how I've learned to show up. And same for you, I'm sure. And all these other teachers that I know that are showing up is it's like that fake it till you make it at first. Like you just have to show up and step in to massive fear massive discomfort and continue to just keep showing up. And then over time, you do start to feel confident, even though it's still scary. So that's such an interesting way to look at it. It's true. 
Definitely when you think about visibility and putting yourself out there, whether it's on social media or even in front of a class, it gets easier with time where there's your limbic system is the part of your brain that is designed to help you recognize threat. So we perceive threat in visibility for good reason, right? I mean, you are less likely to be hunted and killed if you are not visible. <laughs> so we perceive threat and visibility and our brains haven't fully adapted to the modern version of visibility. So our brains are still very primitive, the limbic system especially. It's not the most primitive part of the brain, but it's a very primitive part of the brain and it's very fast. So it's a much faster part of the brain than the prefrontal cortex where we have kind of the wisdom and the ability to think ahead and, and logic. Mm -hmm. So your brain is going to perceive threat much faster than you can talk yourself down. Mm -hmm. But if you put yourself in threatening situations over and over and over, situations that you logically know are not actually dangerous, but mm -hmm. your body, your nervous system is reacting as if they are. For example, like public speaking or teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. Exactly you get used to it over time and you build confidence over time. So any yoga teacher who comes to me and says, I'm terrified of visibility of being visible on social media. I say, well, just remember your first yoga class you taught. You were probably terrified then too. And you kept showing up. And by showing up over and over and over, you learn to relax in these situations that are a little more high stress. And then they're fun. Yeah. I've had yoga teachers tell me that they're almost addicted to teaching yoga, that they get this high from it. Yep. And it's because they've put themselves in this high pressure situation and survive. It's like, you know, you're driving a car and someone cuts you off and you have to slam on the brakes and you're like, oh, and maybe you were sleepy before, but now you're like, whoa, you know, and you feel really yeah. kind of good afterwards because you're like, I'm still alive. This is amazing. Yeah. And like when you actually step into something you're terrified to do and you do it, it's so freeing, it's so empowering, it's very liberating because you just showed yourself, oh my gosh, I can actually do this. I didn't think I could, but I just did it. And it's, it's so empowering. Exactly, it is a way to build respect for yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is the way to conquering imposter syndrome. Although I do not think, by the way, that imposter syndrome is 100% a bad thing. For sure, yeah, let's talk about that, I love that. Well, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? No. The Dunning-Kruger effect is, it comes from a study out of the 1970s by Dunning and Kruger, but it basically showed that the more ignorant somebody was on a topic, the more confident they were about it. There was an inverse proportion, like they would give them these tests and they would, at the end, they would say, how do you think you did on the test? And the better they did on the test, the worse they thought they did. And the worse they did on the test, the better they thought they did. Wow. Because you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But once you know a little bit, then you start to realize what you don't know, okay? So imposter syndrome is like the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. We know that we experience it. We can recognize it we can go, oh, okay, well, at least I'm not Dunning-Kruger right now. <laughs> like, at least yeah. I'm not that person who is acting like they know everything when I don't and yeah. just really putting my foot in my mouth. I've got a couple of really high profile people in my mind right now that I'm not gonna talk about because it's too close to the election. <laughs> Uh-huh. Got it. <laughs> so I think if we can befriend imposter syndrome, it's a much healthier relationship than to be like, oh no, imposter syndrome again, it's going to hold me back. If we can go, okay, so I know I experienced this. 
and I'm going to create some strategies to help me through it. Okay, so this is yoga. So these strategies are going to sound very familiar. <laughs> the first strategy is to be aware of it and to, to not let it just run you from the background, right? Because that's what's going to happen. There's a, a couple major strategies that people uh, have to avoid feeling imposter syndrome. One is procrastination mm -hmm. and the other is perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Okay. So those are kind of the signals to pay attention. Oh, I'm doing that perfectionist thing again. Ah, there you are, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Or I'm doing that procrastination thing again. Okay. Now I need to know to pay attention. So we've activated the prefrontal cortex, right? We've kind of brought it on board. And because we're yogis, yoga practitioners, we can do some nervous system calming yeah. techniques, bring us back into a state of more homeostasis, equilibrium, and check in with reality. Is this something that's truly threatening? Or is this something that if we just take the next step, that it's going to show us what we're capable of one step at a time, one little step at a time? If you aren't already a member, I'd love for you to join me in the free private Facebook group for yoga teachers. Just simply search Yoga Teacher Circle on Facebook. Most of these episodes are recorded live in the Facebook group where you can ask questions in real time and connect with the Yoga Teacher Circle community. Now, back to the episode. So before I ask you to share more about how we can overcome it, what are other ways? So perfectionism, procrastination, and then what are other ways that it specifically shows up for yoga teachers? Yoga teachers. Well, I would say perfectionism is over planning your classes, not being willing to let go of classes that aren't really mutually beneficial, but you feel this sense of, oh, but if I let go of this, then I won't have something else. Mm -hmm. You know, that lack of trusting that actually you're qualified enough that if you free up some space in your life, then you'll be open to different opportunities that will likely be much better. Yeah, more in alignment. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it could be if you're supposed to teach a workshop for a studio and you wait to send them the workshop description so they can't promote it for you because you haven't sent them the workshop description. So almost like self-sabotage. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's, it's running you behind the scenes because you're not thinking, oh, I'm going to not send them the workshop description because I don't want them to promote it because I'm worried that I'm not qualified to teach it. What you're thinking on the surface is, oh, this other thing is more important or even below the level of the surface is just this generalized anxiety when you think about doing that task. And so you avoid it. Right. But you haven't examined, you haven't done the sw swadhyaya to examine why would I feel anxious about this? Like what is going on behind the scenes here? So that's why I love talking about imposter syndrome because the more we hear about it, the more we normalize it and the more people can recognize it. And specifically for you and me, we're talking about yoga teachers can recognize it. It's okay to have imposter syndrome. It's completely normal. It's a good sign. It's a sign that you have humility. It's a sign that you are not just blowing through and you're actually paying attention to what you're qualified to teach and what you're not. That's a good yeah. thing to do. It shows but that you care also. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. It shows, it shows that you care. 
But at the same time, if you let it prevent you from sharing your message with the people who need it, then it is preventing you from doing your dharma, from living your dharma. It's preventing you from making the impact that you can make in the world. And that is super, super sad because there are some really amazing skill sets that we teach through yoga and Each of us has kind of a different lens, a different language, a different approach to it. And so there may not be people in your world who have access to those skills in the way that you teach it. There may be some people who really are going to learn best from you. And if you hold yourself back and if you hide, you procrastinate, or sometimes if you perfectionist, Here's a good example is like the teachers who have this class planned out and every minute of the class is planned out and then they show up in the class and they're like making love with their notes <laughs> and they're not in communication with their students. They're not yeah. paying attention to their students. You know, that is not in service of your students either. Yeah, you can't observe who's really there and what the needs are. That was not necessarily that specifically, but when I first started teaching nine years ago, terrified of public speaking and of teaching, of being seen. So I had some crazy fear to work through with that. And it took a while, but I was the over planner. I... T- I spent all day to plan to teach my 6 p.m. class and I would wake up, do the sequence, then I would visualize it for an hour and then I would practice teach it for an hour and then I'd like take a break and then do it all again and then like show up 45 minutes early to the studio, you know, just crazy. But it also did serve me in some ways, but it definitely was very extreme in how much time I spent. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the first year or two of teaching, it's fine to over plan as long as once you show up with your students, you can be with them. Totally. Eventually, over time, you don't want to spend so much of your energy planning because you're going to have to throw your plan out based on who shows up anyway. So you want to build up the capacity to adapt and respond. And you do that through experience teaching. You don't do that through planning. On the other hand, when it comes to teaching a workshop, I want to be really planned because the way that I teach workshops is I want to be very clear about what the learning outcomes are. I want to be able to promise you in the beginning of the workshop, here's what you're going to take away at the end. And if I don't have a plan, that's just not possible. We go off plan though, of course, with people because humans are going to ask questions, but we want to even have some structure around that. Like here's the time to ask questions. Here's the type of questions I'm going to answer. But yeah, I do think that in the very beginning of teaching, it's almost like an extension of teacher training. Mm -hmm. So all that planning in the very beginning could be really valuable, but not if you are um, not present with your students when it comes to the actual class. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that happens like, I think my first or second class in, right. I was like, Oh, I had this whole plan that isn't going to work. And now I have to trust that I know what to do and to just trust it and to do it. And that's, that's just how we learn though. Like just throw in the fire and we just figure it out. So yeah, that's good. Okay, so what are some ways that yoga teachers can help to overcome imposter syndrome and work through this? Well, the first step, I already said it, is you just have to notice that it's happening and name it. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't realize it's happening, then there's nothing you can do about it. And that is why yoga is so interested in awareness and in recognizing that your thoughts are not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. You are having these thoughts, which are generating these feelings, right? We don't have feelings 
um, except in kind of reaction to a specific event, but most feelings are generated by thoughts. So if you're having the feelings of imposter syndrome, it means that there are some thoughts running around your head and it, it would be smart to identify them and, and notice like what triggers those thoughts? When do I feel that? And then we, it's like some of the matrika or the, the magic of words is we can replace dysfunctional thought patterns with more functional thought patterns. Not because those dysfunctional thought patterns don't are bad or wrong. They have a role, right? We have to recognize that the limbic system is very functional. It, <laughs> it allowed our ancestors to survive. So we are not trying to tamp down the limbic system to the point that it, it doesn't work. We just need some balance between the limbic, limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. So you use the prefrontal cortex to come up with your new stories. Uh, your new stories might be, I am the perfect teacher for some people. You know, here's a story I love. I'd love to talk about this with brand new teachers. Mm -hmm. Some students prefer a new teacher. Some yeah. students do not want to be in class with that person who's been teaching 10 years and they are so excited about their little toe and they're going to teach the whole class about the little toe. Yeah. You know, we get a little nerdy after a while and some students don't resonate with it and it's okay. Totally. I love that. Some students would much rather be in a class with a teacher who's like, oh, downward facing dog. And they're yeah. like kind of thinking on the inside of the windows and then they're silent, 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 silent. And the student's like, yeah, the silence. I love it. Yeah. So drop, drop down in the child's pose while the teacher's like, what's next? And the student mm -hmm. just gets to be. And, and they love it. Yeah. So it's okay to be where you are, right? That's a story. That would be a really functional story. It is okay to be at the phase of teaching that I'm at. I recently did a podcast episode that I was really surprised by the response I got to it. Like yoga teachers were just emailing me like, oh my God, that was like the best podcast episode ever. And I was like, really? It was kind of the same to me, right? As okay. any episode that I did. It was about the three phases of teaching. And so I talked about the fledgling phase and what that's like and what to focus on and what to let go of. And then the second phase is the experimentation phase. And then the third phase is the systematization phase. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I kind of laid it out and I gave some rough timelines, but mostly it's about like, notice how you feel, what gets you excited? What is your tendency? I think especially fledgling teachers really loved it because it gave them some permissions and it gave them some permissions to just be fledglings. And if you can be at peace being a fledgling teacher, you're way more advanced than a teacher in the experimentation phase that is like trying to create a system that they're not ready to create yet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If you can actually enjoy and celebrate the phase you're at now, that's advanced. Yeah, It's kind of like a weird mind trick, but it's like the best thing you can do for your students is just be yourself. It's yeah. so hard. It's so hard. Like you can say that, right? And, and they're like, but how, but how? <laughs> and maybe that can segue into the conversation about personal practice. Yeah. And just one quick thing to touch on that too, because I agree with you a hundred percent. And I had an episode a couple months ago that I did called Start Messy, Perfectionism is Paralyzing. And to actually know that like being messy in it, feeling messy, being the fledgling yoga teacher is literally part of it and you can't bypass it. So then when you can normalize, like you said, like just understand it's just part of it. Now you can just embrace it. Now you can just like feel messy and show up and just be curious and explore. I love well, that. Well, in theory. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can know that at least. <laughs> we can move in that direction. Those of us with more perfectionist tendencies are, are uh, maybe going to struggle a bit more. But, you know, even that, right? Even the perfectionist tendencies, you don't have to be perfectly non-perfectionist, right? <laughs> yeah. I love that. Okay. Let's segue. So this is another really good topic. And that's why I wanted to do both of these in this episode is because I just think they're so important for teachers. You're passionate about helping teachers not only grow their teaching skills, their business, but also to dive into their personal practice. And which we both can agree is one of the most important, the most important, honestly, in my opinion, part of being a teacher and is to have your own personal practice. So what does that look like? How do you help teachers develop and prioritize their practice? And why is it so important? Well, to tie it back to the earlier conversation, when we say, oh, just be yourself, just be present with your students and people say, and yoga teachers say, but how, but how? Well, this is how is to have a personal practice because practice is about presence. It's about being present in the moment as the moment is without working to change it, right? There's moments where you do need to work to change it, right? But you need to be able to be comfortable in the present moment mm-hmm. without having a push in any direction so that you can recognize what direction you want to go. What I find in classes, for example, and then let's say in stressful situations, like sometimes a podcast episode, you know, if I have a guest who's less experienced or even for myself, like sometimes in the beginning of an episode or let's say I'm teaching at a conference or something, right? More of a high pressure situation than I'm used to. I can feel this pressure to move things forward, a pressure to make something happen. And when I follow that and I do that, I lose sensitivity to really be a skillful teacher, which is to respond to the moment, right? If you have an agenda and you're pushing forward your agenda, then you've lost this most key skill, which is to respond to the moment and the person and the people. This is a key thing of what you practice in your home practice. And the reason that I'm passionate about this, the reason I need to talk about this is one, it is hard to develop a home practice. It is hard. You know, I I don't want to talk about this as if it's like, well, this is a prerequisite for being a great teacher. So if you can't do it, you're a loser or you're not a great teacher or whatever. I don't want to come across that way. I don't want to send that message. I want to be honest about this, that this is not an easy project to take Mm -hmm. on. Now, there are things that can make it easier learning about the brain, learning about habit formation. This has been really powerful for me. But what happens for a lot of yoga teachers is they lose the personal aspect of their practice when they start teaching, even if they still have the structure. And what I mean by that is they start to devote their personal practice to planning their classes and it's no longer theirs. And then they are not filling the cup. So I know I did this for so long. And yes, you still learn about presence by showing up in the room and being with your students, but it doesn't substitute for that habit of showing up for yourself day after day. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And oh my God, if we could teach this skill set to our children and to the world, 
I like to think, I, I have this assumption and this kind of my worldview is that we'd be making better choices. Mm-hmm. Not perfect choices, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to solve everything, but I do believe we'd be making better choices and we would walk through the world a little less fragile in our reactivity, right? Because the reason we hurt people, the reason humans hurt people is that we are afraid of being hurt. It's that limbic system that just flares up and says, you're in danger. Who knows how you're going to protect yourself, right? It might be fight. It might be flight. um, It might be freeze. The home practice is really about befriending your nervous system. Mm. I love this conversation. And it's funny, the timing, because this past week in my YTT, early on, this is our third weekend together, early on in my 200-hour programs is when I introduce a self-practice. We have a big discussion around what that looks like. And then in class, I turn on music after we have this big conversation, and I give them 45 to 60 minutes to move and to practice. And it brings up so much fear in the start. They're like, how am I going to know what to do for 60 minutes? Then at the end, everyone is so empowered because it's all about trusting yourself. Your body knows what to do, but we have to tune in. We have to get quiet to listen and then to just get curious. Oh, I want to move here or I want to stay here longer or I want to do restorative or I want to flow more, like whatever the direction is and to just follow it. Like there's no wrong or right. And that's how we learn. Right. So I love I love it. This is such a good conversation. What do you tell new teachers when they say, I don't know how to have a home practice? Like, what do I do? What does that look like? Well, a home practice needs to be a habit. And there's some really great science behind habit formation. Uh, A couple of my favorite books on the topic, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg and Atomic Habits by James Clear. Okay. And a habit has three basic components, a trigger, an action, and a reward. So the trigger is how do you know it's time to perform the habit? You have to have some kind of trigger, right? This is how the brain works. And if you want to learn more about like why this is and all of that, read those books because all of the science behind it is, is in them. But kind of the nuts and bolts of it is you need an unambiguous way to know that it's time to perform the habit. The, the action is obviously what is the actual thing you are doing? And then the reward is what's the payoff. And when you're building a habit, there's a couple of things. One is that it's much easier to stack habits. So if you have a habit that's already in place to use your current habit as the trigger is really helpful. And the other thing that's helpful when you're building a habit is that the reward should be immediate. Okay. Because if you have a reward that you're thinking about that is like three years down the road, 10 years down the road, I want to age gracefully, your brain is just not going to be motivated. The story is going to be, eh, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah. So it really has to be the sooner, the better immediately upon upon performing the habit. Certainly the endorphins and the feel good experience of a personal practice is really great. Noticing how you are at least that day, right? Like you cannot have your reward be any more delayed than that day. So noticing your mental resilience throughout the day can be a reward. But again, when you're first creating a habit, when you're first starting, like right away is is super helpful. So I'll give you kind of my <laughs> my practice technique, um, yeah. how, how I built my habit. 
Yeah. I do my practice first thing in the morning. The only thing I do first is I have my coffee because if I don't, then I'm just not alert enough and I'm going to fall asleep. I'm going to like convince myself that I can do like a restorative posture and fall asleep. Yeah. (laughs) I have my coffee first. When my coffee's done, that's how I know. Okay. So the coffee is a habit that I, it's not ambiguous. I have it every morning. It's there. It's in place. And when it's done, I can't really pretend that it's not. It's done. And it's and part of the routine. It's part of yes. the experience. Yeah. Yes. Same yes. for me. Yep. So the first thing I do when I start my practice is I do self-massage with massage balls. So this is how I convince my brain. I say, all you have to do is lie down on some balls and it will feel fantastic. And it does, right? And I only do that for about five or 10 minutes and then I'm ready. Like I I will move. It's constantly in flux, but on a given day, it's very, actually very regular. Like I tend to be working on some things. And Mm -hmm. so like, if you looked at my practice this month, it's very the same almost every day. But if you compared it to six months ago, it's pretty different. And is it more physical? Is it slow? Is it like, how is it showing up? Well, that's what, that's all the stuff that changes. Yeah. It fluctuates for sure. It fluctuates, right? Certainly there's always a movement component because asana is extremely helpful at preparing the brain for meditation. I prefer to meditate after asana. I find that it really, the endorphins are extremely helpful for enabling me to sit still. And that's the whole goal, right? The whole point of asana is to sit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but whether the movement is slow and gentle or whether it is, you know, more vigorous, I'm not really into extreme ranges of motion right now. I was started yoga a little bit more on the hypermobile side. I certainly had a romance with, you know, King Pigeon and Urdhvadanyarasana. And I had all kinds of romances, but I'm very functional movement now. So from the outside, my practice probably looks pretty boring. That's neat. I'm right here with you. Yeah, lots of repetitive movements, a lot like Pilates. I've got a pull-up bar right there. I've got weights. This is still part of my personal yoga practice because Mm -hmm. I am very present while I am doing it. I'm really in my body. Um, So I'm not prejudiced about like the shapes. or the movements. It's like, I want to do what is going to feed my body and prepare my brain. And that's sustainable. It's what it sounds like too, right? Something that will carry you forever, right? Because I agree, like I had the same experience, very hypermobile, blew myself out, chasing all the big shapes as a newer student and teacher. And now I don't, it, it looks so different. And now it's just about being sustainable and having this longevity. Yeah. The only romance that I still have that is kind of in that realm of like people consider it to be a showboaty pose, but for me, it's very, very functional is handstand. Yeah. Okay. I love it. That's fun too. It's also good to have fun and to play in your practice and to do things that might be scary Mm -hmm. and uh, have that involved. I love that. Do you, do you meditate at the end of every practice? That shifts that goes in and out right now. No, but six months ago. Yes. So it will, it will come back. Do you tell teachers when they ask how do you invite them to like, what kind of clear action steps can you tell like top three steps to like develop your own practice? 
Choose a time. Choose a time. Figure out your trigger and reward and make a commitment Perfect. to yourself. Easy, simple, easy and hard. <laughs> easy but hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's awesome. I love that. It's interesting because I used to only really be able to practice as a student and a new teacher in classes being led by another teacher. Now, pre-COVID, it changed. And now my practice, like all I really crave is my own practice at home. Like I love guiding myself. But there is something that's still really powerful about being in the community and being a student and being guided, being led. So that's interesting how it shifts as well. Does that shift for you too? Yes, I think they're two different things. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge introvert. So it's been a long time that I've preferred my home practice over a group class. Group classes have always been mixed. Actually, I like Zoom better because okay. I'm at home and I'm, yeah. I'm in my comfort zone. I love being led. I do. I do love being led. But the the social aspect before and after class can be very taxing for me, especially having taught in the same community for so long. It would be really difficult for me to go to a class and not run into people that I know. And that's not necessarily what I'm looking for in a yoga class is not necessarily social time. I know other people do want that and love that. And that's fantastic. For myself, I'm, I crave more introspection during my practice. And I like to socialize one on one or in small groups. I do not I do not love parties or, or big groups at all. Mm -hmm. Is your entire business now from home? Yeah. And you love that, obviously. I, I, yeah. love I, I yeah. absolutely love it. Like I have no problem not leaving my house for months. Yeah. When uh, COVID first hit, I, I didn't get gas for like four months. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And you're like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it didn't bother me one bit. I actually really loved it. And of course, I have a lot of compassion for the people who are more extroverted or for whatever reason are struggling with COVID or struggling with being at home. And I know that, you know, like I am very, very lucky to live in a beautiful home that there's enough room for me. I have an office that um, is my practice room too. And it's like all the way down in the basement. So mm -hmm. I get up before anybody else. I get up at 530 in the morning and like I get to come down here and I have my, my space and it's mine. You know, if I lived in a cramped quarters, I would not be feeling yeah. so excited. But yeah, that makes sense. So I want to start to close it out. And the first question is, what are your top three negotiables or non negotiables for self care and for mm -hmm. filling up your own cup so you can show up and serve your community in the way that you do? Coffee, <laughs> my home practice and going on walks. Yeah. Ooh, I love it. Do you do walks daily? I do, although it was super stormy today, so I didn't get out. But I try. My goal is an hour a day, but I'm 20 minutes is my minimum. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. So what are you working on in your business right now? Memberships. I have two memberships. I've got 
one membership that is called the Impact Club, and it is support and education to help yoga teachers make the impact that they want to make in the world. So Mm -hmm. that includes teaching skills and business skills. And then the other membership is a collaboration with a dear friend of mine since teacher training, um, who's a physical therapist, and it's called Anatomy Bites. So it is a membership that spoon feeds yoga teachers little delicious bites of anatomy in the context of yoga and kind of helps them to become more confident talking about the human body and understanding how it plays, how the structure of the body plays in with our teaching yoga. And it's it's a structural approach, but it is designed to support a deeper approach to yoga because we have a very inclusive, non-dogmatic understanding of how asana can support our deeper forms of yoga. So those are the two projects. And it's really interesting because these are kind of more low ticket offers, meaning under $50 a month, Mm -hmm. but we have a lot of people in them. So there's a lot of managing people and figuring out systems to take some of the labor out of it, you know, but when you're setting up these tech systems, it ends up being a lot of work on the front end and you definitely don't want them to break. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine I don't have a membership and that's something that I've always wondered and thought about was how much goes behind the scenes to run it. Have you had a a membership before? No, here's the deal. Like both of these really just launched and one of them is only like a few months older than the other one. So there's a lot of, a lot of learning curves, but I love it. It's so cool to be able to kind of work with people in an ongoing way. I think it's really awesome. I love it. And I love the names. Those are fun. Those are very fun. Yeah. So where can people find you and connect with you on social media, your website, your podcast, all the things? Yeah, my website is teachingyoga.net. But if you search for the yoga teacher resource anywhere, it should point to me, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, I got have a great Facebook group with almost 10,000 yoga teachers in it on any podcast player, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, just search for the yoga teacher resource. Awesome. So fun to have you here today. I really appreciate you being here and just connecting more to the yoga teacher circle community. So this is really, really awesome, Mado. Yeah, that was really fun. I loved your questions. And I loved how we were able to bring so many different angles to the conversation. I feel like Wow, that we covered a lot. So thank you for your great questions. Yeah, absolutely. We did a lot in 57 minutes. <laughs> thank you so much for listening in today. I'd love to stay connected with you in between episodes. You can find me on Instagram at Taylor underscore Ray Yoga and join the free private yoga teacher circle Facebook group, which is full of some pretty awesome and badass yoga teachers. 